Well, if you have your Bibles with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26. And the title of tonight's lesson is, Who Can Be Saved? Who Can Be Saved? And behold, someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good thing should I do? that I may have eternal life. And he said to him, Why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. But if you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these things I have kept, what am I still lacking? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be complete, go and sell your possessions and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But when the young man heard this statement, He went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And when the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then, who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. O God, we pray that you will be in our midst. Give us understanding as we look deep in your word. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, I want to ask all of you a question tonight. What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? What price are you willing to pay to gain eternal life? We have just read a story, perhaps a familiar story, about a man that wanted eternal life. And it's in this story that we learn the cost to follow Jesus. Get this, salvation costs us nothing, but it also costs us everything. Now, for a little context here in the Gospel of Matthew, the central portion of Matthew is divided into five sections. What Matthew does is he'll give some stories about Jesus, and then he'll give a discourse or a sermon of Jesus, then more story, Discourse, more story, sermon. The cycle occurs five times. And what we are reading is the fifth and final section of stories before Jesus' final discourse before his death and resurrection. So Matthew has already written much about Jesus' teaching. And Jesus had a lot to say about eternal life. And it's this section 
uh, the story that I want us to focus on tonight, and we'll divide this passage into four sections. First, the question. Second, the requirement. Third, the response. And fourth, the lesson. Well, if you still have your Bibles, we're going to be back again in Matthew chapter 19, starting in verse 16. And the story begins, and behold, someone came to Jesus. And notice the story starts with just the term someone, one or a man. There's not much of a description, but we quickly see in this passage that there are at least three important characteristics of this man that comes to Jesus. First, this man is young. Look down in verse 20. It says, the young man. And a lot of people believe that this term young man refers to a man between the ages of 20 and 40 years old. So he's not a boy. He's not in youth group. He probably has a job, an important position. But relatively speaking, he was still young. And you understand it's good to be young. All of you are young. You are all healthy, strong. You have potential. You have time. This man was young. But second, this man was also rich. Look down in verse 22. But when the young man heard this, he went away grieving. Matthew writes, for he was one who owned much property. And in fact, in Luke, another account of the same story, Luke describes this man as extremely rich. And so, just like it's good to be young... Well, it's also good to be rich, right? If you are rich, you can buy anything you want or need. But third, this person wasn't just, this man wasn't just young. He wasn't just rich. He had power. He had power. And not in this passage, but back in Luke chapter 18, verse 18, Luke writes that it was a ruler that questioned Jesus. And this word ruler in Luke that describes this same man, it's a term that's used to describe someone in the upper class. This man might have been the ruler of the synagogue, or he may have been a member of the Sanhedrin. He is a part of the elite class, uniquely privileged, a man of influence. So this man had everything. He was young healthy, vibrant. He was rich. He could have everything and anything that he wanted. And he was powerful. He could, in a sense, do whatever he wanted or influence others to do what he wanted. And this man comes to Jesus. He doesn't come timidly. He comes confidently, and he asks the most important question in life. How can I have eternal life? What Jesus said earlier in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, Jesus said, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of all the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. This man might have heard Jesus' words. And so, Jesus, so this man comes to Jesus, and he asks about salvation. How can I 
be saved? But notice here how he asks this question. Look back down in verse 16. This man came to Jesus and said, Teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? What good deed would entitle me to have salvation? What good work will earn God's favor and gain me entrance into the kingdom of God? This man assumed that there was something that he could do that would merit salvation and eternal life. Have any of you in this room asked a question? How can I have eternal life? Have others asked you that question? And if so, how would you answer this question? Well, let's look at what Jesus does to answer this man's question. So we see, first of all, the question, how can I have eternal life? Now, the second section, the requirement. What's the requirement for eternal life? And notice here in the second section, that Jesus doesn't give a straightforward explanation of the gospel. He doesn't say to the man, well, great question, let me give you the gospel message about me. He answers the question with another question. And he asks the man in verse 17, why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And what Jesus is questioning the man is, do you even know the definition of good as it pertains to salvation? Now, most of you in this room are in school, either homeschooled or you're attending a school. So I have a question. I, if I were to ask you, what is the definition of a meter, M-E-T-E-R, the metric unit meter? What is your answer? Does someone know what is the definition of a meter? Someone really educated. Yes, one of you. Huh? A type of measurement. Well, it is a type of measurement. But if I were to say, how long is a meter? What is the definition of a meter? What is your answer? Yes. 100 centimeters. But what is a centimeter? It's about an inch. Maybe. Maybe. Well, just to give you a little history, I'm not sure if you're aware of this. In 1791, a group of people got together and they defined a meter. And they said that a meter is defined as one ten millionth of the distance between the equator and the North Pole that if you go from the equator to the North Pole and divide it by one or 10 million, that is a meter. And in fact, in 1799, a group of people got together and they made the first official meter stick. And so people would come and say, I want to know what a meter is. And they would look at this meter stick and they would say, ah, there's a meter. And maybe they'll take a piece of wood, cut it, and now they have a meter stick, and they go back home, and they now know what a meter is. And then 90 years later, I guess they had to make some modification because it wasn't exactly right. And so they, 90 years later, they 
altered the meter stick a little bit to make it more correct. And today's definition of a meter is this. It is the length of the path traveled by light in a vacuum in one 299,792,458 of a second as defined by a casium clock. That is the definition of a meter today. So as you can see, sometimes it's hard to define exactly what that thing is, a meter. Well, what's the definition of good? What is the definition of good as it pertains to salvation and eternal life? And what Jesus is telling me, this man is that, do you understand what you mean by good? There is only one unchanging standard of good. And Jesus declared that the only one who is good is God. Psalm 14, verse 3, it reads, There is no one who does good, not even one. Jesus says in Matthew 5, 48, Therefore you are to be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. So Jesus is correcting this man and saying, How can you ask what good thing shall I do to inherit eternal life? The only one who is truly good, who can ever be good, is God. But then he tells the man, well, since you asked this good question, I'll tell you the requirement. If you wish to enter life, keep the commandments. And what Jesus is saying here is keep the commandments of God as found in the Old Testament. Let me just pause right here, though. Jesus never says here that it is possible for us to earn eternal life by doing good works. But what Jesus is stating here is that if you want to know the requirement for eternal life, it is perfect adherence to the commandments of God. Well, the man hears this, and his natural question is, well, which commandments? There are a lot of commandments in the Bible. And in fact, the man's probably thinking, you know, my friends and I, we've written other commandments outside of the Bible that we wish all the Jewish people to follow. Which commandments are you talking about? And then Jesus gives five of the Ten Commandments. And he gives the additional commandment found in Leviticus to love your neighbor as yourself. I think it's interesting that the commandments that Jesus lists, most would say, are the easier commandments. Jesus does not give the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And he avoids the Tenth Commandment, do not covet, which is the exact sin that the Apostle Paul was struggling with in Romans chapter 7. He doesn't even state the greatest commandment, right? The greatest commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might, and strength. He doesn't give that commandment. He gives the second commandment, love your neighbor 
as yourself. And so he lists these commandments. And notice the man's response. The man says in verse 20, All these things I have kept. What am I still lacking? Now let's pause for a moment. Is this man's statement true? He is testifying all these things I have kept, and he's implying that I have kept the entire law. Well, Jesus doesn't actually correct this man's false assumption. And notice that even though the man believed that he had kept this whole law, he sensed that something was still missing. He didn't tell Jesus, oh, that's great, I've done it, and, and he goes home. He realizes it can't just be that. There must be something more. There is something still missing. And so he asks Jesus again, what am I still lacking? And Jesus tells the man that to complete what is lacking, you must do four things. And we see in verse 21, go, sell your possessions, give to the poor, follow me. And again, Jesus is not setting the terms of salvation. He is not telling the man, if you go, sell your possessions, feed the poor, follow me, you deserve eternal life. But what he is telling the man is, yes, you are missing something. Here's one thing you're missing. And what Jesus is trying to do here is he's trying to expose this man's heart and to reveal his idol. See, this rich man's God, this rich man's prized possession was his money. And so when Jesus gives these four imperatives, he is testing the obedience of this man to God's commandments. So Jesus is testing this man's obedience first to the 10th commandment, which forbids the sin of covetousness. Jesus is evaluating the man's obedience to love his neighbor and to not neglect the poor. And Jesus is commanding the man's obedience to the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. So what Jesus is telling this man is that, hey, your God is wealth, but you can lay it aside for my gift of eternal life. Jesus is commanding this man to sell all his possessions, to give to the poor as an act and display of supreme devotion to Christ Jesus, Lord and Master. See, brothers and sisters, salvation is a free gift. Eternal life doesn't cost us anything in the sense that it's free because you and I don't do anything. Jesus did it all, right? Jesus paid it all. He came down, lived the perfect life, adhered to God's commandments perfectly in a way that we could never do. And he humbled himself even to death on the cross. 
But even though salvation costs us nothing, salvation will cost you everything. Earlier in the book of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and he hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has to buy that field. Jesus says again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant that seeks fine pearls. And when he finds that one pearl of great value, he goes and sells all that he had and he bought it. The kingdom of heaven, eternal life, is removing any and everything to trade it for eternal life, a prize that can never be taken away. Jesus, again, in chapter 16 of Matthew, Jesus says, if any of you wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. And get this, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world yet forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So what is the question? How can I have eternal life? What is the requirement? Well, salvation costs us nothing, but it will also cost you everything. Now let's look at the man's response. This third section, the response, and this is found in verse 22. I'll read it again. But when the young man heard the statement, he went away grieving. For he was one who owned much property. You see, get this. This man comes to the right person, Jesus Christ. He asked the right question. How can I have eternal life? And he hears the right answer. Deny yourself and follow me. But the answer that this man received was not the one he wanted to hear. And so this man looks at his personal wealth and Christ's eternal riches, and although he said he wanted eternal life, he set his heart on his money more. What a tragedy. We heard about the Leffler family and what happened with little Leanna. And most everyone would say, that is a tragedy. And as sad and as sobering as what happened last week was, this tragedy is infinitely greater. And this man knew it. Because look what the text said. He went away grieving. Jesus said, what, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? 
Jesus says again in Matthew 6, don't store up treasure for yourselves on earth where moth and rust destroy. Store up for yourself treasures in heaven. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So again, the requirement, it's keeping God's commandments perfectly. And because we couldn't do it, Jesus did it. He died on the cross and he rose again to prove that God's wrath had been satisfied. And so now Jesus can extend a general invitation to all of you and to me. And this invitation demands a response. This invitation will cost us nothing, but at the same time, it will cost you everything. You must deny yourself and follow Jesus as Lord and Master. You are not your own. Jesus gets everything. He demands your supreme devotion. I think each of you is very much like this man. We already talked about it. You are all still young, full of health, vitality, and this non-renewable resource we call time. You are also rich. You live in one of the wealthiest parts of the world. And believe it or not, you also have power. You are privileged. You are living in perhaps the most privileged country in this world. And you get the opportunity to choose your future. Not everyone can do that. And so you read this man's response. And my question to all of you is, what is your response? Jesus says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He says again, none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all of his possessions. So we see the question, the requirement, the response. Fourthly, the lesson. The lesson. Now, apparently, Jesus' disciples saw firsthand this interaction between this rich man and Jesus. And so Jesus turns to his disciples and read with me again in verse 23 and 24. Jesus tells his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And again, I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. The camel, because there were no elephants, no rhinoceros or hippos in Palestine, the camel is the largest land animal in this part of the world. And the eye of a needle is the smallest opening in a typical Jewish household. So what Jesus is depicting explicitly and illustrating vividly is that it is impossible for a rich man to be saved. 
And when the disciples heard it, what does the text say? They were astonished, bewildered. And notice their response was not, oh, well, great. All of us are poor anyway. Let's remain poor. No. They realized that if the requirement was perfection and supreme devotion to God, then who can be saved? No one can be saved. Rich or poor, no one can save himself. It is impossible. This is impossible. And so Jesus then succinctly summarizes the lesson. With man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You see, for someone who is wealthy, to shift their primary allegiance from wealth to God is humanly impossible. But what Jesus is saying is with God, all things are possible. I'm sure most of you remember the story of John the Baptist. And you may have recalled that John the Baptist, his life was ended when he was beheaded. And I don't know if you remember, but after he was beheaded, all right, the rest of his body, John the Baptist's disciples hurriedly came to take his body for a proper burial. But what happened to Jesus when Jesus died? None of his disciples were there. Certainly not Peter, who denied Jesus three times. Not even John, the beloved disciple. The Gospels recorded that basically none of his disciples were there. So who buried Jesus? Do you remember? I love this. In Matthew, the same book, Matthew writes in Matthew 27, Now when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. And this man went to Pilate, and he asked for the body of Jesus. And Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And look this. And Joseph took the body. He wrapped it in clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had honed out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. When we hear the story that three days later the, the stone was rolled away, Jesus' 12 disciples had no part in it. But God, who can make all things possible, touched the heart of this rich man, Joseph of Arimathea, to the point when there was no disciple who had the courage, he took the body of Jesus, wrapped the body in linen, put him in a new tomb that he had honed. And I, I've been to, to Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem, it's like a big city. 
every square inch of real estate is precious. To have a tomb in the side of a mountain in Jerusalem must have been worth a fortune. And Joseph of Arimathea gave that all up just to bury the body of Jesus. Remember the story of Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus, the tax collector? I love this story, too. There was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector, and the Bible says, and he was rich. And we saw Jesus coming. He was short like me, climbs a sycamore tree, and Jesus says, Zacchaeus, you come down. I have business with you. And what did Zacchaeus say? Half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. If I've extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times more. And Jesus said, today salvation has come into this household. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It's not humanly possible for the rich to be saved. It's impossible for any of us to be saved. So why are you asking me about what is good? There is only one who is good, and that's our Lord, Jesus Christ, and God the Father. So the question, who can be saved? The requirement, God's law must be kept perfectly. The response, to follow Christ costs you nothing, but it will also cost you everything. The lesson, with man this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Well, let me close with a final story. I don't know how many of you are familiar with a man named William Borden. William Borden. He was born in 1887, and William was an heir to one of the wealthiest family estates in the entire country of the United States. And before starting college, William felt a burden and a desire to spend the rest of his life to be a missionary. And so he decides to walk away from his family fortunes to go to missions, and he writes in his Bible, no reserve. No reserve. Well, when it was apparent that he couldn't change his son's mind, William's father forbade him ever to work again in the family business and the family estate. And when this happens, William wrote in his Bible a second time, no retreat, no retreat. Well, he graduates from Yale University and Princeton Theological Seminary, and to prepare for his final destination of China, to serve as a missionary to the unreached Chinese Muslims, he sails to Egypt on his way to China to learn Arabic. And three months later, something happened that shocked the world. William Borland 
contracts spinal meningitis. And after taking medicine, which his body did not respond to, on his deathbed, he opens up his Bible and writes a third and final time, no regrets. And shortly thereafter, Borland dies. His former professor at Princeton Theological Seminary, a renowned professor, he tells everyone that no student that he's ever had impacted him like William Borden. And he says afterwards, quote, apart from Christ, there is no explanation for this life. And what this professor is saying is that I cannot understand or fathom. I am a Christian. I am a theological seminary professor. There is no explanation that how this man who can inherit everything gives it all up for the sake of the gospel and dies and writes in his Bible on his deathbed, no regrets. So who then can be saved? Well, with men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Let's pray.